Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. I'm here to do podcasts. Won't be our first, won't be our last. The subject of the story is very vast. Hope you like it and you won't be a guest. Other words that rhyme with cast. Let's do a show. Man, I just kept going and going. <laughs> I enjoyed it. It though. was, uh, you know, it was uh, my homage to the beginning of the film we're about to talk about. Yes. So we are talking about the films of 1967 in this season. And we have arrived at our documentary pick, which features Mr. Bob Dylan. It is Don't Look Back from D.A. Pennebaker. And uh, a little taste there of the brilliant Bob Dylan impression that I'm sure (laughs) is going to recur throughout this episode. Of all my impressions, uh, that's clearly number one. And of all the Bob Dylan impressions, that's probably as good as Oh, yeah, obviously. But what I'm referencing is the opening sequence, uh, you know, where he does subterranean homesick blues, and he's got the note cards, and we've seen it throughout pop culture in so many ways. And uh, that's a forerunner to the music videos of uh, the MTV boom. That it is. Yeah, you you see that the first thing in this movie, and that really just captures your attention immediately. Um, and something that has been relentlessly sort of copied and parodied. And, and one of those classic movie moments that you're so, even if you've never seen this, that you probably are so familiar with that the impact of the actual moment is lessened in a bit. I don't know. That's something that happens for me with a lot of classic movies that we've talked about before that if it's something that's permeated pop culture so much you can't have the the sort of pure reaction to it anymore you're just waiting for it to show up i kind of liked it though i mean you know and it gets you really it does it does a good job of getting you into the spirit of what we're about to see and also who's standing there in the background talking to someone but we never reference him do you know who it is it's alan ginsburg yeah yeah exactly yeah, no, I'm not saying I didn't like it. I'm just saying that I think the the impact of it is sometimes less. And that's that goes the same for famous lines that show up in other movies and things like that. So this film uh, documents the 1965 tour that Bob Dylan undertook in uh, the United Kingdom when he was already, I mean, really hugely popular, you know, sort of beginning his massive popularity that continued to this day. Really, yeah. it's kind of amazing. He's an icon, man. That that he is. And uh, Penna Baker followed him on that tour. This movie, I I couldn't figure out how well it did at the box office. I mean, I feel like as popular as Bob Dylan was, this kind of film is probably not like a movie that's going to be huge at the box office anyway. The figure that I found is that it grossed twenty seven thousand one hundred and fifty eight dollars which is a very specific number that I'm not sure is accurate. Yeah, I'm wondering, I mean, and I don't know either, but this could just be one that Pennebaker toured uh, around. And, you know, I'm obviously it's still got a major audience. So, you know, there's no doubt this thing's made a lot of money over time. But Yeah, and it was re-released in theaters. And this is the kind of thing, too, that, I mean, obviously home video didn't exist in 1967, but as soon as it did, it's the kind of thing that people will have as part of their collection if they're Bob Dylan fans. Or D.A. Pennebaker fans. I think there are more Bob Dylan fans. But in D.A. Pennebaker's defense, uh, you could say that about many people, that there are more Bob Dylan fans than X. True, true. But I just think that documentaries of this type, 
you know, music documentaries, some something capturing a particular tour of the musician is something that fans will typically want to own and watch. Again I agree. Again. And I'm a big, I'm a big fan of this genre uh, when done well. And obviously if it's a performer, I'm interested in. Right. And I am the opposite is that even when it is a performer that I'm interested in, I tend not to watch these kinds of movies. We talked about this a bit in our episode on stop making sense, but yeah, it just doesn't engage me. I mean, this is more of, this isn't a pure concert movie, like stop making sense. I mean, there's a lot more to this, but it's still just these kinds of movies I don't particularly engage a whole lot with, but this is clearly like the template for so many of them. Right. This is, this is it, man. You do, <laughs> you do one. You got to watch this first that you do. And it was, it was generally well-regarded by critics, but uh, of course, as is often the case with these older films, it's amusing to see the reaction at the time and how we can kind of look at it, how it turned out. Um, and of course, Bob Dylan was very, very popular, but he was very young and he was kind of the the hot young thing at the time. And people didn't realize what he would become. You know, this is like somebody reviewing a Justin Bieber movie right now or something like that. Ay, ay, ay. So uh, <laughs> Ro- Roger Ebert, who was himself young at the time, was clearly a fan of Dylan's music, but uh, maybe not the way that he was presented in this film. Ebert said... Don't Look Back is a fascinating exercise in self-revelation carried out by Bob Dylan and friends. The portrait that emerges is not a pretty one. Indeed, those who consider Dylan a lone ethical figure standing up against the phonies will discover after seeing this film that they have lost their hero. Dylan reveals himself, alas, to have clay feet like all the rest of us. He is immature, petty, vindictive, lacking a sense of humor, overly impressed with his own importance, and not very bright. Dylan's songs give a deeper, more honest impression of their author, and I don't think this movie should detract from them. When Dylan sings, he has hold of something precious. It is only his pathetic private life, as he has revealed it in this film, that should be dismissed or regretted. And I think Ebert is a little harsh on Dylan there. For someone who he clearly admires as a musician. Yeah, it's almost like he's disappointed in what he saw of Dylan the person and just had to lash out against him or something. But I didn't get that. Like he he said he's not intelligent. There's nothing in the movie that would make you think that Bob Dylan is not intelligent. I agree. I mean, I think if anything, Dylan seems quite canny in this film and that he knows what he's doing when he is... Uh, sort of being combative with these reporters and stuff. And as, as we'll get to here, like in a later review, I mean, he knows he's on camera. He knows this movie is going to be released. He's very famous. And he knows that this is part of sort of his public image that he's in the process of crafting. Right. And he clearly does have a sense of humor. Another thing that uh, Ebert said he doesn't have there. And then lastly, you know, I mean, uh, as I was talking to my dad, uh, who is an old hippie and loves this music and everything, how much of it is real and how much of it is Dylan putting you on? Right. And I think that's the case in a lot of documentaries of this type going forward to the, to today is that these people who are in the business of crafting images for themselves know that they're on camera and they're going to behave in a way that works for whatever image they want to create. Right, wasn't that, that was like literally the whole point of that Joaquin Phoenix one from a few years ago, right? Oh God, yeah, uh, I'm still here. Yeah, I didn't see it. Yeah, you shouldn't, it's terrible. Okay, I won't. Um, but yes, that was a movie that I think was widely known to be fake at the time, but I'm talking about movies even in which everything is quote real, 
But at the same time, you know, everyone knows. I mean, and this is like a reality TV thing, too. You know, you're on camera, you're going to behave in a way that is how you want to be portrayed on camera. I mean, once you're on camera, right, that's the whole thing that anyone says. You're never going to get something 100% honest at that point anyway, because you're on camera. So right. what you get is what you get. And I think Dylan was having fun a lot of the times uh, with the medium and uh, wanted to present himself as kind of a brute in some ways. Yeah. And Ebert is treating this as if Pennebaker somehow like snuck in and captured Dylan in these unguarded moments and revealed him to the world. And that's not the case at all. I agree. But it is a compliment to Pennebaker because he is so good as like this fly on the wall type of this camera. He is. So uh, in, a, in an even more ironic take, Donald J. Henahan, who was the music critic for the New York Times, reviewed this film. And he said, it will be a good joke on us all if in 50 years or so, Dylan is regarded as a significant <laughs> figure in English poetry. Not Mr. Thomas, the late Welsh bard, but Bob, the guitar-picking American balladeer. One step toward the latter's canonization has been taken, in fact, in a full-length documentary, Don't Look Back. It is an absorbing film. Whether one is a member of the under-30 set that regards Mr. Dylan as a spokesman, or one of the vanishing Americans over that age, this look into the life of a folk hero is likely to be both entertaining and occasionally disturbing. Mr. Dylan parries and thrusts with interviewers, some of them impossibly square, of course, and therefore perfect targets for the put-on. He doggedly and sullenly resists attempts to probe his psyche. If he has ideas, he hides them. He and his pals can have fun, but it is a special hip fun that always threatens to turn to anger. So he feels like he's, uh, you know, sort of on the outside looking in here, but he's sort of appreciative of that. I yeah, guess. he kind of gets it at least. Right. It, it is interesting because this is, you know, the time of that culture war, you know, hippies, free love and, you know, that kind of more uh, conservative, silent majority, so to speak. And uh, I guess that's kind of what you're seeing here with Dylan. Also, you got to note, Josh, 1965, this is right before he went electric at Newport, right? So this is like a seminal moment or that is a very seminal moment. But this is like when he is the king of the folk music scene, right? And when he did go electric, you know, there were those boos at Newport because they're like, you're you're betraying folk music, blah, blah, blah. But he was evolving and becoming uh, different with his music, you know, more of a rock star, I guess. So just want to put that in the time and place of when this was filmed. So when people saw it, he had already gone electric and become an even bigger star. Right. And I think even within the context of this movie, there's that moment when Pennebaker is kind of playfully alluding to Dylan's increasing rock star-ness. And uh, some interviewer, I think, asks him a question about, like, where did it all start for you? And Pennebaker cuts to this footage of Dylan playing an, an old folk song for, like, farm workers. Yeah, it's for a voters' rights rally in 1963, I think. That's a great sequence. But Yeah, I mean, and, but I think sort of the implication there, in a way, because and then we cut back to him being this superstar, is... He's even strayed from those roots. And not that Pennebaker is criticizing him, but sort of just demonstrating the, the evolution of Dylan over this short amount of time. I mean, so yeah, so that's from uh, Greenwood, Mississippi, Voters Rally, 1963. The song he plays is only a pawn in their game. And it's him surrounded by a lot of uh, black farmers, I'd say, right? I think and, that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to disagree with you there because... 
you know, any rock star can still take up any cause. And I, I mean, you know, Dylan's taken up plenty of causes as a rock star. Look at the hurricane, you know, the song, the hurricane, which helped free uh, Reuben Carter from prison for a murder he didn't commit. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just saying that it demonstrates how f- the distance sort of that he's come in that period of time, that that was, he was standing surrounded by a handful of people at this rally playing a, a song, an old, I think that's not even a song that he wrote necessarily, right? It's just a traditional folk song. And now here he is as this voice of the generation playing these giant sold out halls right. and stuff. Not again, not to criticize him or say that he's, he has sold out, but just to show sort of the amazing rise in this short period of time. Okay. <laughs> um, so Andrew Saris in The Village Voice spends a lot of his review talking uh, about Dylan and, and about that generational divide. And he says something about how he's over 30, but he feels like, you know, essentially the kids are all right. He doesn't say it that way, but that they've got better taste now than, uh, you know, the people who listened to Perry Como back in the day. But um, the segment I wanted to quote here is uh, relates to the idea we were talking about just a little bit ago about the documentary form and whether it's fake or what's being played up. Um, So he says, the camera can capture only that truth that chooses to exhibit itself. If there were nothing of the exhibitionist in Dylan, the camera would register a blank. Many truths are hidden from the camera, and this is a fact that too many makers of documentary refuse to face. The great ideal of the documentary movement was to tell the truth about everything but the truth was often lost in a collection of external details. The highest art of the cinema consists of relating what is shown to what is not shown and of defining essences in terms of surfaces. Pennebaker's mock passivity before his plastic material does not alter the fact that Dylan is performing in front of a camera. What Pennebaker records is not Bob Dylan as he really is, whatever that means, but rather how Bob Dylan responds to the role imposed upon him by the camera. Compared to most of the public figures of his time, Dylan responds very well indeed. So he's respecting Dylan, but I think acknowledging, like we said, that this is part of the image-making process of Dylan as a rock star. I think that's fair. And, you know, like we had already addressed, like once a camera's on you, as little as it might be, you're going to act a little differently no matter what. Right. I mean, and I think documentary-wise, you know, we talked about when we talk about pumping iron, for example you know, which was a movie that was accused of contriving a lot of its elements. I mean, there are all of the the people shown in that movie are clearly playing up parts of their personalities so that they can get camera time or get the audience to to be enamored of them. Well, he's also here, you know, playing with Dylan's playing with the idea of celebrity. And who's to say he doesn't do this all the time? Like maybe fans come up to him or, you know, uh, people who check him into hotels and he's always messing with them. That could just be the way he has fun and like kind of deflates to some type of normalcy. Right. And we all, obviously all we can know is what we see in the film, what Pennebaker chooses to show us. And as with any documentary, as we've also talked about a lot, he shoots hundreds of hours, probably of footage if he spent all his time on tour with Dylan to, to distill it down into this 90 ish minute movie. And so there's a lot that he leaves out and he, as well as Dylan, has chosen a sort of image that he wants to construct of his subject. Right. You're crafting, you're crafting the narrative. Yeah. Yes. Yes, indeed. So as uh, I would say, you're, would you say you're a fan of Bob Dylan, Jason? Yeah, I'm more of a casual fan, but obviously, as, as we've noted on this uh, 
podcast. I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan, and I think there's a, a very easy connection to make and the influence on from Dylan to Springsteen and uh, you know the mutual respect they have for each other. So I like a lot of Dylan songs, and obviously you can't whether you like him or not, like as a lyricist, you have to acknowledge just uh, what an amazing poet he is. Uh, apparently, Donald J. Henahan does not think so. <laughs> but um, so, I mean, had you seen this film as a, in your education on Dylan? I'd, I had never watched it all the way through, but I'd seen a good amount of it, I'd say before. How about you? Uh, no, I had not. I mean, I may have seen that opening the subterranean homesick blues sequence, which, as you said, is is essentially like one of the first music videos and I think has been shown on its own uh, apart from this movie a lot. Um, but no, I had not seen this and, and I'm sort of neutral on Dylan, I guess I can respect how important he is. And as you say, a great lyricist and has written some amazing songs, which I tend to like more in versions performed by other people. But yeah, I mean, I was certainly aware of this film and, you know, familiar with a lot of his music. I saw Bob Dylan in concert, actually, when I was in college, just because it was like something to do. Oh, how was that? It was fine. Um, I'm sure I didn't appreciate it as much as I would. And the thing about Bob Dylan touring was that at the time, and I think still, I mean, so this would have been in uh, maybe 99 or 2000 or something that I saw him. And he doesn't, as we see in this movie, he does not give a fuck about anything. and so. You know, he would play. It's not like he went out there and played his greatest hits like a lot of kind of classic rock artists would do. And so I went to that concert and I might have known like one song Mm. that he played or something like that. I don't remember specifically, but so it was just kind of an and he doesn't really say anything in between songs. So it was just kind of an experience that washed over me. And then I could say like, oh, well, I did that. I saw Bob Dylan. That's like a thing that is good to do. But I did. I think I was more, this is, this is sad, my, my musical taste, but I think it was Natalie Merchant who opened, and I think I was more excited to see her. All right. Well, hey, man, that's you. Yeah. Um, I saw Dylan guest with Springsteen at Chase Stadium. They played Highway 61 Revisited, and like it was such a huge roar in you know, New York, and people loved it, but it, it wasn't, I don't think either of them would say it was the best performance in the song. It was more loose and jangly and just like, here's a nice special guest moment type thing. Right. That's still a cool thing to, again, to sort of say that you've seen that you were there when that happened. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And of course, Natalie Merchant covered Because the Night, sung by Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. yeah. That's a great yeah, version of that. That's by 10,000 Yeah. 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 So, Dave, uh, what's your history with Bob Dylan other than the curly hair? Yeah. Both right. share. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've always loved Bob Dylan, but I also am more of just a casual fan. I don't really listen to his albums that much. I just love a lot of his songs. But I did also, similar to uh, Josh, I saw him once uh, in concert, and it was a similar show to that where it was like, I don't think I knew anything he was playing. I don't think he played any of the hits, and it was just like, well, I'm at a Bob Dylan concert, so that's cool. Right. That was, I think, exactly my attitude toward it, and it yeah. was you know, when I was in college and it's a small college town and basically any concert that came to town, it was like, we should go see it. Yeah. So that was what we did. What's crazy though, is he's written so many well-known songs. I, I would wonder if like, I could go to a concert and only recognize one. Like, you know, it feels like you would recognize more like Josh, Josh and I saw John Fogarty a few times. And like, of course he plays more hits perhaps, but you forget like this dude's written so many well-known songs that like you forget how many well-known songs he's written. But Dylan is so prolific that he's written like far, I would, you know, 80 to 90% of his songs are not well-known and he doesn't seem to differentiate in terms of what he chooses to perform in concert. 
All right. So I don't remember. I'd have to try to find the set list and what specifically he performed and which songs I knew. But I definitely just remember it was all kind of a blur. And this was... Was this performance with the full band rock and both of you guys, there was not yeah. an acoustic interlude or anything? Or I mean, there might have been an interlude, but overall it was a full band performance. Yeah. 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 So, uh, but I'm sure he still does some songs from those early times when it was just him and a guitar. Sure. But again, I would not have necessarily known <laughs> which ones were which at the time. All right. Good enough, sir. Yeah. So uh, any other background on this film that you want to mention, Jason? Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll st- the tour took place from April 30th to May 10th. So it wasn't even that long of a tour, really, you know? And I think that's really the only fact I want to mention right now. But uh, I'm sure we'll talk about more things in our next segment, Josh. We will. We'll come back in a moment and talk our general thoughts on Don't Look Back. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we are talking about our documentary pick, Bob Dylan in Don't Look Back. And for me, at least, as I said, as I established, these kinds of music documentaries, I just kind of don't really have much of an enthusiasm for. And so watching this movie, I felt like mostly this is interesting in a way that you can see how influential it was. But it just kind of was whatever to me, a lot of it. Well, like you said, it's not a full concert film. There's so much stuff that's more candid. Um, I thought that you might respond to that differently. Uh, I mean, I think I probably liked or was more interested in that than I would have if it was just a a full-on concert film. Um, But I don't know. A lot of it is just because it's so familiar from so many others. You're like, oh, here's the backstage antics. And I think one of the things is that This movie is known, I mean, as those reviews emphasize so heavily from the time, this movie is known as this this film about Bob Dylan being an asshole. And I think I was ready for these crazy scenes of him just tearing into the press or whatever. And it's really not so much that. I I feel like it's just, it's a lot of it is more playful, is just him being kind of goofy for the sake of the camera, for the sake of his image. And maybe, again, because we've seen that in other music documentaries or that we expect music, uh, you know, pop stars or whatever to have that kind of combative attitude toward the press or to be, you know, image making at the time. I I felt like that aspect of it was so subdued that it was almost disappointing. So I didn't get that person. I kind of liked the way he sparred with them and everything. And, you know, what, what you're really seeing is just him keeping them on their toes, right? Like, They'll ask him a question and he'll just throw it like right back at him. You know, there's that whole sequence towards the end where he's like, you know, uh, you know, the other the interviewer is like, what do you want people to know about you? And he's like, what do you want people to know about you? You know, or whatever. And however it is like, yeah, why should I want to know you, man? What do you bring to the table? You know? And yeah, I kind of liked all that stuff. I did like, like you said, you're seeing like a superstar develop and how just even in a time where media wasn't as readily available, like just uh, what a sensation he was, you know? And there, there's so much stuff that's a bit anachronistic and weird. Like Joan Baez is on the tour with him, but never plays music other than like in 
the hotel room with well, him. Well, I think she was his girlfriend at the time, and that's why she's on the tour. Yeah, maybe. But, um, and you're probably right there, but it's, uh, you know, you would think if you bring Joan Baez on tour with you, you would at least have her open for you then. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, and she gets to play some songs in these backstage sequences, and obviously she's, she's quite impressive. Um, you know, she's got a great voice and a more traditionally beautiful voice than Bob Dylan sure. has. So, um, yeah, and I, I feel like for me too, one of the things is that, I mean, obviously on purpose, this movie just dumps you right into the action and there's no explanatory text on screen. There's no voiceover. There's no direct to camera interviews and Pennebaker is just putting you right there in the moment. But as someone who knows who Bob Dylan is, but isn't necessarily familiar with these other people, I felt like I was at a loss a lot of time. I felt like the journalist in this movie who asks Joan Baez how to spell her name and then is embarrassed that he didn't realize she was Joan Baez. And I would not have realized that she was Joan Baez either, except he asked her to spell her name. No, I think that's totally a fair criticism. Like you want Pennebaker to just put like little titles up underneath them just to say like who they are. Cause you're getting like, uh, you know, Marianne Faithfull, John Mayall, uh, Alan Price, Ginger Baker. I mean, I knew who Albert Grossman was, who's his manager. And they do introduce him a yeah, little. Yeah, you you like, get you get the idea that that's Bob Dylan's manager. Yeah, yes. I mean, and even like I think Pete Townsend is there for a second or whatnot. You you kind of want to just hey, just put a title card like you know underneath or whatnot. And then also, yeah, that you know, there's so much, and I kind of like this segment a lot. Talk about Donovan as like the new Dylan, and that's every young sing singer songwriter who ever did well after Dylan is he the new Dylan, right? And Donovan is catching fire, but they never actually tell you who, like when Donovan's on screen, they don't even tell you that it's Donovan, right? And that that could have been helpful to viewers, I think. Right. Well, I mean, I think, and I'm not necessarily offering this as a criticism of the movie, but just sort of giving you my perspective, because I think at the time, all of those people were super famous and that anyone who saw this movie would know who they are. I mean, again, it's like if you make a movie about Justin Bieber right now or whatever, and he you know, walks backstage and there's Taylor Swift. We don't need the movie to tell us this is Taylor Swift. No, I disagree. I think you do. I mean, because now you're saying the documentary is only there for people who know, but I think the form of documentary is often for people who want to learn about different things. Well, right. But I'm just saying it's, it's a legit approach and he's far from the only person to approach documentary filmmaking that way. And I think there are other documentaries that are not about instantly recognizable famous people that still will do this and will require the audience to sort of use context clues to figure out who is who. And it's a legit way to approach things. I just think like, look, I could you, would you have known who Alan Price was? No, no, I wouldn't. But would people have, I mean, I guess it was also a really big deal that Alan Price had recently left the animals, right? right? And Dylan asks him something about that. And, and, you know, again, it would be just like some big pop star news of the moment right now if it happened right. in the movie. But Alan Price wasn't Eric Burden. He wasn't the lead singer of the animals, right? So he wasn't the face of the animals. So when you're talking about Taylor Swift now, you're talking about a megastar in the age of social media, right? Whose face is going to be plastered all over the internet every day. I don't think Alan Price or any of these stars were ever going to get that type of thing because it wasn't as readily accessible. And now if you're talking about, you know, someone who's a band member as opposed to the face of the group, then I think you do want that uh, context there for you. Well, I mean, I, I as established, I did want it, but I, I think that and we can't know for sure how people reacted at the time. But I feel like people who saw this movie at the time would be much more likely to know who that is and to know the story. I mean, no, there's no social media, but they're reading NME or whatever it is. I mean, some of the press that Bob Dylan reads 
in this film. And these were clearly people who were covered very extensively in the press, you know, obsessively in a way. I mean, they make that joke about the article where it says like, is Donovan abandoning his fans or something? And then someone is like, Donovan's only been around for three months. Yeah, that's funny. You know, people are paying that close attention to him. It's just in a different format than social media. But I mean, I will say, for example, I watched the recent uh, Billie Eilish documentary and, you know, whether Billie Eilish and Bob Dylan are equivalent is not really the point. But the point is that at the moment, she is the equivalent of what Bob Dylan was at that time. And I'm vaguely familiar with her, but not intimately. You know, I don't know all of her songs or know everyone in her inner circle. And that movie does exactly what this movie does, which is just puts you right there alongside her. People flit in and out and it doesn't tell you who they are. And one of them is Justin Bieber, but you know, who I do know who that is. But a lot of them are people that I didn't know. And watching that movie, I was like, I'm not sure if I should know who this person is. But if I were a big Billie Eilish fan and followed everything that she does, I would know who this is. Well, I just think, I mean, having watched a ton of music documentaries, I like it better when I know everyone, any type of documentary, I want to know who it is. And I'm not saying you need to put an arrow and follow them around, but like just in at some point, give me the context. Yeah. I mean, I would prefer that too. I just think that it's a legit approach to not do that. Okay. I mean, it's a, it's a minor quibble in the grand scheme of things. True. True. Um, I, you know, I think there's so much good stuff in here that like, you know, that's, it's minor. It's fine. Like Donovan, the whole Donovan stuff is, which is a runner throughout the whole movie. Is he going to be the next Dylan and this and that? And you're talking about how he's presented as like an asshole, how Dylan is. And they have this thing where, you know, Donovan's in the hotel room and uh, he sings to sing for you. And then Dylan like sings uh, It's All Over Baby Blue, which is like one of my favorite Dylan songs. And at the time, I think it was recorded as like, well, here's Dylan one upping him. But the way it was cut together, it doesn't show that like they asked each other to sing. Right. You right. Know, I think it does show that. Or I got that sense when Donovan finishes. I mean, first of all, you have Dylan saying like, oh, that's a great song yeah. to Donovan. And then I think he says, Donovan, like, oh, would you do It's All Over Now, Baby Blue? And then Dylan does because he's been requested to. Okay. Do you think, because we're talking about people putting on airs for the camera, when Albert Grossman just yells at the hotel staff, I thought all of that was just like, hey, I'm a big shot and I know the camera's on me and I'm going to act like a big shot. I don't think he, I don't think that was like a real portrayal of what would have happened. And maybe not. I mean, and Grossman, you know, at least as much as Dylan is, I'm sure, aware of the myth making going on. And, yeah. you know, he wants his client to be sort of perceived in a certain way. And so if he can, as the manager, act a certain way to, to do that, then, you know, it's any moment in this film, I would believe was something that they kind of thought of in advance to do as something that would be what they want in the film. Grossman's a very interesting character. There's that sequence with him and Tito Burns, who is a uh, old British musician turned like musical agent where they're negotiating a TV appearance for Bob Dylan. And I was like, I could watch a whole documentary on just the deal making and uh, Grossman kind of going and building his client up like this. See, and that's one scene where I was like, I don't need this scene. It just yeah. kind of goes back and forth with them negotiating. I mean, it seemed like a very basic you know, they're trying to get to a fee or whatever, and they're going back and forth and making phone calls. And it just, to me, it was not particularly exciting. But I mean, I can see its value in, in the film too, because especially in a way, if you're like, oh, Dylan is this uh, pure artist or whatever, 
And but here's what happens behind the scenes is his manager like nitpicking small amounts of compensation for him to get a TV appearance. Yeah, doing his job is what you mean. Well, right. I mean, not that it's not important, but if you have this idealized sense of Bob Dylan, it shows you that like also he is like any other musical artist, you know, and has a business side. Mm. Dave, any thoughts? I mean, to me, the big thing was that it was just awesome that this footage exists, you know, and that's kind of the draw of any of these kind of documentaries, I guess. But especially to go back to Dylan, like right at this particular moment in time, like you were saying right before going electric and all that. It's just cool to watch that. But at the same time, I don't think there was any uh, anything that particularly was that exciting that happens in it um which was i think kind of the negative for me i think dave might have liked the part the best where they're running down the hall and there are all these corridors and that, that's the famous spinal tap spoof that <laughs> right right yeah. i definitely <laughs> thought of spinal tap during that scene yeah um i mean i don't what you're saying there's nothing that exciting i think the point is like the performance is supposed to be the excitement, right? That's what it is there for. for those the are my favorite parts. Yeah, yeah, whenever whenever he's performing, or even the other people are performing, that's those are my favorite parts of it. Did you have a favorite uh, song in there? Not particularly. I mean, just uh, that that era of Dylan. I mean, it's all so good. You know? And I would argue that maybe the fact that nothing exciting happens is also part of the point. Sure. Yeah. That this is how it is to be on tour. That you're just kind of hanging out backstage or talking to annoying people that you don't want to talk to or whatever that's what the life is right and that's kind of why i liked all that like stuff that wasn't on stage i did like a lot of the songs like i said i'm a big fan of it's all over baby blue times are changing you know there's a lot of good stuff in there it ain't me babe and you know he even has like some humor in there where like he's calling out donovan or you know doing stuff like it's all right mom only bleeding right but the stuff that I found interesting was like, you know, where he's at the reception and like, you know, that's like clearly a big stodgy scene and they're in the corner, like beat poets snapping along to the piano of, uh, you know, the, the more proper player. Um, I like the sequence where Joan Baez is just singing and he's there typing and maybe that's staged, right? But it kind of gives you the, um, you know, as Josh, as you said, he's so prolific. It kind of gives you the feeling that like he's always working on something there. So I like that a lot in the interaction. Like we said, this was a different time, right? There, you know, did, did hotels even have TV? Did hotel rooms have TV at that time? Probably, but like, don't know. it wouldn't have been what we have now with a million channels, right? So there was just all this hanging out and like, I'm not going to call them parties, but like after, sure. you know, after group hangs and everything. I, I liked all that stuff. I thought it was really a good look into it. And the way Grossman shoots, like we said, is you know, that kind of verite fly on the wall. I'm going to let whatever happens happen type thing as non-intrusive as possible. I thought that was effective, not just for the backstage stuff, but really good for the performances. Yeah. And I mean, this isn't a performance documentary. And a lot of the times when he shows Dylan on stage, we don't get the whole song or we get a different focus. I mean, there's a fun sequence where we see the the text backstage where things aren't working and they're frantically trying to get that everything. was great yeah trying to get everything properly turned on and dylan obviously does not give a shit and he is just playing the song anyway even though no one can hear him <laughs> um so yeah i mean that's cool and 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 that sequence that you're talking about with dylan where he's typing while joan baez is 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 singing and i think there was some criticism of that as the in the sort of dylan is an asshole uh, perspective of like, oh, she's performing this beautiful song and he's ignoring her. But 
to me, that showed the sort of like casual nature and like, you know, they have this relationship and that's just what happened. You know, she performs, she sings beautiful songs all the time. And it's just, that's what happens. They're hanging out and he's, he's writing a song on his typewriter or whatever he's writing one of his million memoirs. And, and I like that for sort of the casual, it didn't seem to me like he was being rude to her. I don't think so either. It's just two artists working on their art in the same space. Right. Yeah, I, I think so, too. And whether that was staged or not, that was the impression that I got of it. Another thing that I liked was uh, just kind of watching it and thinking about whether or not the whole messing with the media that Dylan was loving doing so much. That's something that so many artists nowadays, you know, still do. And I just was wondering if this is where it comes from, if they watch this and said, I want to do that like Dylan, you know? I mean, maybe, or even if they didn't watch this, that, that that it became a thing to do because of this. Sure. You know, I think going going back to like Andrew Saris's reference to people like Perry Como or whatever, I think pop stars were expected to be much more nice and polite right. prior to the 1960s. And that part of Dylan and the whole generation of, of, of 60s artists was the idea of not doing that. But yeah. other types of artists might have been doing that. Maybe not pop stars, but certainly I don't think he's the first guy to ever be combative in a playful way with the media. True, sure. true. I mean, you know, you could talk about visual artists or whatever. I mean, uh, painters and people like that or poets or I don't know. Right. But I think especially pop artists, you know, popular music artists were expected to sort of follow the rules and do what they're told because they're all part of this big machine. And people really started, artists really started rebelling against that a lot at this time, in part because they were, you know, Dylan is a singer songwriter. He's not just an interchangeable voice performing someone else's music. He is the whole package and he can control it. I mean, and the same with the Beatles, you know, they can control it more because it's, it's about them entirely. The who? Oh, the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> and the who also and the who. yeah, yeah. no i mean yeah this is the birth of you know artists uh i guess controlling more of their work like you're saying yeah i think so or at least is is part of that again i feel like there's not a lot of things in this movie where i can say that they were bad or that i have criticism specifically it's just more that it was just kind of like yep that's that's this this kind of film yeah and it was I, fine but i wasn't sort of engrossed or enthralled by it uh i liked it you know i probably liked it more than you it says i think one scene that you would like though is with the wife of the sheriff of nottingham i right? did like that Who yeah is the most um you know if you were gonna uh you know the margaret rutherford character in the chaplin movie which is like i must say i find your music to be lovely and if you come back you will stay at the mansion house we would love to show you around here and what we've done with the village right and he's just like yeah, all right. I'll come back and see the mansion. You know, it's a, such a dichotomy between the two of them. Yeah, and I like that scene because to me, that was the kind of thing where they tell him you're going to meet the wife of the sheriff of Nottingham and you think, oh, Bob Dylan is going to rip into this like aristocratic doofus or whatever. And he's super charmed by her. And so, you know, as much as he's combative with all these people, she comes in and she's really nice. And she obviously likes him and likes his music. And he's like, cool, I like you. And it's funny because she just like every time someone else walks in, she's like, I was just saying you should come back and stay at the mansion house. I really think you're wonderful. Someone else walks in. As I was just telling the gentleman, please come and stay at the mansion house. You know, uh, she definitely uh, wants to make sure that they know 
that she has a mansion house. Right. So. But yeah, I mean, she's this and in her and her accent and everything. She's this upper class British stereotype. But she loves Bob Dylan, which is nice. Too. Right. And 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 because of that, he kind of loves her. I mean, yeah. he he is very charmed by her. And so I, li- I did like that. I like that, too. What about uh, no apostrophe and don't? Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of an affectation. It's fine, I yeah. guess. I don't Do you know, know where the title comes from, Don't Look Back? I think there's like different uh, sort of interpretations, but one it was one in particular thing that Pennebaker mentioned. I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, Satchel Paige, a very famous uh, black pitcher, uh, baseball player. Uh, don't look back, something might be gaining on you. That's his quote. Yeah, and I, you know, I can see that as it's the whole idea of Bob Dylan moving things forward, right? As we were just talking Which about. Which he did. He's yeah. a revolutionary. So should we uh, rate this one out, out of, of five mansion houses? <laughs> sure. I was going to say like harmonicas, but uh, that's fine too. Well, I must say, if you ever come to the mansion house, we can watch this film, which I give three and a half mansion houses. I'm not going to attempt any impressions, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to give it three out of five. So, and I, I mean, I didn't dislike, I enjoyed it for what it was. And I, and I certainly respect it and, you know, kind of acknowledge the influence of it but i wasn't fully engaged that's cool i think that's fair yeah so dave how would you rate this i'm going with three and a half mansion houses i i was gonna go with three but you know the music is just so damn good it's like it bumps it up a little bit yeah the music is good and i think that's another thing that i again i'm sort of neutral on the music so to me it's like i can see how it's well-made music, you know, well-written and important and whatever, but I'm not like, wow, Bob Dylan music. Cool. I'm excited to see that and hear that. So yeah. Billie Eilish. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was saying Billie Eilish, I have the same uh, sort of attitude about She's good too. Yeah, exactly. That's my, that's my feeling on both. All right. So we'll come back and talk about the legacy of don't look back. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we've been talking about our documentary pick, Don't Look Back, featuring Bob Dylan. And I mean, of course, the legacy of this movie for Bob Dylan is, I mean, Bob Dylan is is one of the most important figures in American culture period. And, yeah. and this, this movie is like a, a key element of his importance, I think. Yeah. It kind of, like we said, went along with the super starring of him and showcased a very important time right before he went. And I wonder if he knew like he was going to go electric at, um, at Newport. And he was like, let me just get this documented before I kind of go in this new direction. Maybe. I mean, I think as we've established here, there's a lot of careful myth-making here, and it wouldn't surprise me if he thought of it that way as well. I've watched two documentaries about the band who, you know, were the Hawks at that point, where, who was, you know, and they they worked together, songs from Big Pink, they all wrote together in Woodstock, and the band was his backing band, you know? And uh, in um, Once Were Brothers, Robbie Robertson's talking about how after they went electric, they'd go play, and people would, like, boo them and throw, like, bottles at them, and, like, it was such a, like you said, revolutionary thing for him to go from folk to electric. It's very strange to think of a folk audience so angry. Well, or of any audience that angry with a change in, in musical style. I mean, I feel like things are so much more fluid. I mean, not to bring up Taylor Swift again, but, you know, I think she's a recent person where she was incredibly famous for one style of music and then really changed 
that style of music a lot. And I'm sure alienated some fans, but at the same time, you wouldn't expect people to throw bottles at Taylor Swift because she's playing pop music instead of country. Um, I, go ahead. Just go. Move on. All right. You're going to throw a bottle at Taylor Swift? <laughs> at you. <laughs> okay. Um, so, well, I know you're a big Scorsese fan. Have you seen his Bob Dylan uh, documentaries that he's made a couple? Yeah, I never watched No Direction Home, which was... Um, Actually, you know the history of that, which is that Pennebaker went back with Dylan in 66 and they filmed that tour. And in his version, something is happening, never got released. And who knows if it ever will. But a lot of that footage was used in No Direction Home. And then Dylan has his own version of that documentary, Eat the Document, which is very hard to find. I, don't, I have not seen that. Yeah, I have not either, um, nor have I seen the Scorsese film. And and more recently, Scorsese made the Rolling Thunder Review film, which is, I mean, we're talking about what's real and what's not real or staged in these documentaries. And that has specifically fiction elements that are mixed in with the documentary elements without differentiating between the two that confused a lot of people at the time. But I didn't see that. I didn't either. And I mean, I guess I should watch them. I, you know, I've watched the George Harrison ones from Scorsese. And but they just um, right like once he started doing the Rolling Stone ones, they were like, oh, cool, four hours, you know, and it's like, I'll get to it eventually, you know. Yeah, well, Scorsese has this whole like sort of parallel career as a documentary filmmaker. I mean, and he's made quite a few, not just music documentaries, but other kinds of documentaries as well. But yes, but the documentarian we're talking about, D.A. Pennebaker, let's talk yes. a little about his legacy as he is one of the most influential documentarians uh, ever. He is. And I mean, this is a big reason why, as we kept keep saying, this is sort of the, the template that nearly every behind the scenes music documentary follows all the way through that Billie Eilish movie that I keep mentioning because I happened to see it recently. It's so sad that you keep bringing it up, Josh. But um, he, you know, Pennebaker's done some other seminal yes. music documentaries. He did Monterey Pop. Uh, I just watched the, uh, you know, it's it comes from that. He uh, took Otis Redding. And uh, Monterey Pop is just like kind of like a set list of highlights of all the performers. Right. And you usually so show one song of each. But in 86, he released uh, Shake, Otis and Monterey. And I watched that uh, before we recorded this. I love Otis Redding and I've seen some of that footage before. It, it's electric, man. And uh, yeah, I highly recommend that. You know, Pennebaker did The War Room, which is an amazing documentary with his partner, Hedges, Chris Hedges, who's his wife and documentary making partner their producing partner that's all about the bill clinton campaign to become president and i think his style there where he you know kind of utilizes this hands-off approach fly on the wall you really see james carville and george stephanopoulos like you know kind of running this campaign in a time before social media but like really making things modern is really really interesting so i would recommend that one uh and then he's produced some other ones startup.com kings of pastry that i've seen but I would say go back and watch some of that music stuff and watch uh, The War Room. Yeah, and I have not seen any of his other films, um, the major ones or any others. Um, he uh, passed away a few years ago. His final film was an animal rights documentary called Unlocking the Cage in 2016 that nobody seems to care about but that was the way he uh but you know making making films all the way uh through the end of his life and producing for other documentaries yes yes certainly like a mentor for a lot of other documentary filmmakers and uh yeah so i haven't seen any of his other films i have however seen the documentary now parody versions of the war room 
uh, and original cast album Company, which was his documentary about the recording. About I watched that this week. And I, I watched the documentary now also on that. But the original cast recording a company, it's only like 50 minutes, uh, 53 minutes. It's great. I mean, you're seeing how a Broadway show, not show, but like soundtrack is put together. And it's got Elaine Stritch like as Elaine Stritch, like, you know, and she's such a Broadway legend. And you really get that there. And, you know, um, it's interesting because in that one, you know, they work this long, crazy 12, 14 hour day. And then they make her sing her big song at the end. And like her voice just isn't there. And you can't blame her on that, you know. So they go through all these takes and she's so angry at herself, as you see in the documentary. Yeah, with, now. with Paula Pell yeah, as that she, character, she, which is hilarious. It is very funny. But then she just comes back and nails it. it, it you should watch that. That's very good. Job. Yeah, no, I should. I mean, certainly that as well as uh the war room are important, influential documentaries. You know, my, my lack of interest in concert movies. I don't know that I would get much out of watching Monterey pop. Can I just throw in Depeche mode one Oh one, which he co-directed, which I, I haven't, I haven't seen since high school. I was going to rewatch it this week, but it's not on any of the digital services. I wanted oh, to watch man. that too, but that's considered again, one of these like precursors to reality TV because that follows fans as they follow, right. You know, uh, the band and everything. I did watch some of his shorts from the fifties. Also, oh, yeah. there's a lot, if you have criterion channel or if you have Josh's password to the criterion channel, <laughs> equally uh, good. Yeah. I watched his first short called daybreak express, which was about a train line that is, uh, shutting down in New York. And it's just very like, kind of like there and you can get lost in it in the background music by Duke Ellington, but get lost in the best possible way. And then the next year he did one called Baby, where it's just following his daughter at the zoo. And it's just nice. It's just, you know, these are good little pieces that kind of show his developing point of view. And then when you get to hear this kind of technique is really, really working. Yeah. I mean, even though I am not as familiar, I mean, it's it's clear that he has an important influence and a clear perspective. I think that's that's a part of what makes this movie work is that it is crafted with a lot of thought into what to show and what not to show and how to put that together. I have not, Dylan has this sort of weird career also as a movie actor or as creating uh, a few like fiction films. Have you seen Masked and Anonymous or Hearts of Fire, Dylan's uh, starring roles in films? No, but I should watch, Masked and Anonymous was the last 15 years or so, 10 years? Yeah, it wasn't that, it was 2003 maybe? Yeah, I did see that one movie where everyone played Bob Dylan. That was weird. Yeah, uh, the Todd Haynes film. Yeah, what um, was that? I'll Be Me or something like that? No, that's, see, I'm confusing it with the title of the Joaquin Phoenix movie that you mentioned earlier, because oh. that movie is called, I think the Joaquin Phoenix movie there. is called I'm Not Here, Yeah, and the Dylan movie is maybe called I'm Still Here. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah, that's confusing. Yeah. I did see that one as well, the Todd Haynes movie. That was weird. That was weird. But I think Mass and Anonymous and Hearts of Fire are perhaps even weirder, and I have not seen them. But every, you know, you look on Letterboxd and every, everything you see there is about how Dylan is possibly like the worst actor <laughs> you can imagine. And I could see how he would be, even though in this movie, as we keep saying, he's clearly he's acting engaging, to some yeah. degree. He's engaging, but he's also, you know, playing a persona. But I could see, especially as he got older and, you know, of course, he's being playful with the press in this movie. But later on, he just didn't talk to the press at all he almost never does interviews or anything like that yeah. anymore yeah that's true um he's still putting out music and you know i know he put out some stuff during the pandemic uh that was very well regarded yeah that one i forget what it's called but it was like a 17 minute song i think was his first number one in 
30, 40 something years or whatever like that. That's awesome. Yeah. Good for him. He just turned 80. So nice that he's wow. still going. Yeah, I know. Also still going Donovan, Joan Baez still doing some stuff yeah. too. Donovan's great, dude. Oh, okay. I like Donovan. You, you, uh, you know, you saw, you love Zodiac, and uh, don't they use, uh, yeah, Hurdy Gurdy, Hurdy Gurdy Man. Man as, yeah, you know? that's very effective in Zodiac and yeah. makes it sound very creepy. Mellow Yellow, uh, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of good songs there. Uh, yeah, Donovan, Season of the Witch. That's a really good song. That is, and the, the which is from the George Romero movie, Season of the Witch, that was written for, which is a, a great movie and underrated, possibly on the Criterion Channel. Watch it with my password. <laughs> uh and parodies of this film um you know especially of the the opening sequence or others i mean we talked about spinal tap parodying that bit in the corridors where they can't figure out where to go i've never seen bob roberts the tim robbins mockumentary but i guess that does a lot with this yeah i think it does it parodies that kind of sequence and uh just a bunch of other stuff like you're saying josh yeah so something like this i think when it's such a big part of pop culture you come to it and it it, it the impact is lessened and documentary now in the opening credits they don't look back's one of the you know titular movies that they talk about but they never did a parody of don't look back did they no they haven't um yeah the the opening sequence of documentary now includes some actual documentary clips yes but no they haven't parody don't look back but i could see them doing that and i'm sure they would do i don't know when that show is coming back but it is brilliant and it's just pretty fun the way it, it like meticulously recreates the style of so many different kinds of movies is really quite impressive what's your favorite one that you've seen i don't know i i like their their, their spalding gray parody is really funny and i mean i like there's so many of them too where i haven't like i said i've seen the the company parody and the war room parody but i haven't seen those movies but you can still just get so much out of it and you can tell how carefully they've like recreated these things in this in this amusing way so i haven't seen that it's the the steven soderbergh's falding gray films that yeah. they're parodying yeah gray's anatomy yeah and uh, there's another one too i can't remember what it's called um, yeah uh it's uh, like war to cambodia swimming to cambodia yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So. but yeah that's a great show and if they did do a don't look back parody i'm sure it would be wonderful so yeah and then just the the music video in general i mean right am i Correct. I have this memory of that in excess video where Michael Hutchins is doing the same thing. Right? Yeah, for so, sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, everyone's been influenced by this thing. Yes. I have to imagine Weird Al did it at some point. I'm sure he did. Yeah. 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 I can't see him not. I mean, he had that great Bob Dylan parody song. That's like 11 minutes long yeah. or something. <laughs> that's just him doing uh, palindromes in his Bob Dylan impression. Um, that's that's very funny. And in part, it's funny because it just keeps going and yeah. going. And it's one of those jokes where you're like, it's funny. And then it's like, not funny. And then it's funny again, just because he keeps funnier. doing it for so long. Right. Yeah. 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 He pushed he to that level. Exactly. Exactly. So anything else on the legacy here you want to mention, Jason? Um, we should mention that Penny Baker also was not just a master with the camera, but also with the actual technical aspects. He created a portable 16 millimeter camera with sound recording system, and that kind of revolutionized things and made it so you could record stuff like this. And I think that's it for me on this one, Josh. I liked it, and you liked it all right, but we both recognized just how important it was. Bob Dylan, the only other artist besides him to sell out De Montfort Hall in Leicester in the 1960s, the Beatles. Well, you know, clearly, I thought you were going to say something unexpected, like <laughs> I don't know what, but the Beatles. If 
Taylor Swift. <laughs> well, in the 1960s, I don't think so. That would be unexpected. That would be quite unexpected and, and <laughs> I, I feel like Josh likes Taylor Swift a lot more than Jason here. That well, seems I mean, my, my, my point isn't even about <laughs> no. whether I like Taylor Swift. It's just that she's really famous right no, now. I don't dislike Taylor Swift at all. I just find it weird that that's Josh's constant reference point to Bob Dylan. Well, I mean, or Billie Eilish. <laughs> those are the two go uh which is the better documentary of those two? i haven't seen the taylor swift one actually yeah. and the billy eilish one is okay it's way too long it's like two hours and 20 minutes long and it doesn't need to be that long yeah i mentioned the two on the band that i watched which uh once were brothers which is robbie robertson's answer to kind of like smooth out his uh legacy from the uh leave on helm one ain't in it for my health which is an amazing piece one of my favorite music documentaries yeah, I, like I said, I'm just uh, not particularly keen on these films. And even when they make them about artists that I really love, I just kind of shrug. I remember watching Cameron Crowe's Pearl Jam documentary. And Pearl Jam, probably my favorite musical artist of all time. And it was like, eh, I could have done without it. Well, then I'm really glad we picked this for this episode. No, it was, it was a good discussion. <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's, it's a worthwhile movie, even if I wasn't thrilled with it. It's certainly worth seeing. It's on HBO Max as well as Criterion. Yeah, I like it, man. It's yeah. a good piece. Good stuff. So that is Don't Look Back, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can check us out on social media. You can. I'm Jason Harris Comedy, Facebook, Instagram, J. Harris Comedy, Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Invented in 1967, maybe? <laughs> Who knows? Don't Not look back me. at that website. There you go. No. So, uh, you probably would be better off listening to all of Taylor Swift's music than going on that site. We're at awesomemovieyear.com, awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram, awesome movie pod on Twitter. I am at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at signalbleed on Twitter. And check out our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And every once in a while, I squeeze in a plug for Wax Tracks Records. With Bob Dylan, you can come find some of the most rare and hard-to-find Bob Dylan stuff. So here's a good place for that. Hey, and I'm going to plug Piecing It Together because Dave and I have been for about six months been doing a preview episode. All the movie trailers coming out every, uh, every month. We talk about what's coming out, what we feel has influenced them, what we kind of think the movies are going to be like. And then we go back and talk about the movies we saw from the last month that we covered. So, so if you want more Jason, listen. And more Dave. And more Dave. That's right. Listen to Piecing It Together. Everybody but more Josh. Well, I'm on it occasionally, <laughs> but not on those monthly episodes. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> All sorts of great people on Piecing It Together. And Taylor Swift. Not yet. No, not yet, no, but we'll it might see. Happen. You never yeah. know. Yeah. All right. Uh, what is in our next episode? Josh, Jason? it's your pick, and I'm going to let you tell it to everyone. But first, I should mention, Josh, Connecting it to this episode, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen. The title of this movie is the title of a Bruce Springsteen song. I did not know that. Uh, the movie is John Borman's thriller Point Blank is my pick. So tune in next time for that. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.